Thank you, Ken. It's time to give Joey a test on last Sunday night's sermon. He said he's going to listen to it by the radio. And uh, the text was on what, Joey, what was it, John chapter? Okay, thank you very much. All I know is that John chapter whatever. Whatever. <laughs> I missed your point when you first started. Okay, well, that was probably my fault. Yeah, my, it was. <laughs> my lack of communication, I guess. <laughs> anyway, it's good to have the uh, siblings uh, with us today. They're visiting today and they've joined today. And uh, that's good. Most of you probably don't know that Howard Shipley was in on the organization meeting, the original meeting. Uh, that uh, met for the purpose of uh, putting together Criswell Bible Institute. Oh that was, wow. How many years ago was that, Howard? Long time. Long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be here today if it weren't for Howard, so that's uh, very interesting. And then uh, a number of years ago, when I left the school and planted the church, uh, Howard and Sue came to the church and uh, were members there for a long while. And so it's good to have them back at First Baptist. Once you know they're back, not because of me, they're back because of Robert. And they said, when we found out Robert was back, we had to come back. So I just want you to know that. I don't have groupies that follow me around. <laughs> okay, let's take our Bibles and open to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Now, Luke 7 follows immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. Luke 5 and 6, Jesus deals with the Sermon on the Mount, which includes the Beatitudes and how to love our neighbors, and he gives a lot of instructions. And then chapter 7, he demonstrates how we put those principles into practice. And chapter 7, the first portion of chapter 7, deals with two individuals. The first is a centurion... That's chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And the second is a widow, chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. Now, the centurion and the widow are examples of how we are to rub shoulders with people who are not like ourselves. You'll have to remember that centurions were Romans. Jews didn't have much to do with Romans. The centurion was a Roman soldier head of a hundred men, and he was in charge of occupation troops in the Jewish cities. So this man represents Rome. And Jesus is going to use, uh, is going to rub shoulders with this man, and he's going to uh, apply the <laughs> principles of the Sermon on the Mount to this man's life. And then the second person is a widow. <clears throat> Why does Luke choose to tell us about a widow? Because widows were the poorest of the poor. And Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. And in the Beatitudes, you're going to see this woman's story lived out, in a sense. This is a woman who has no status, no social status whatsoever in ancient times. And so Jesus is going to show us how to relate to people such as a centurion, who's a different religion, from a different culture, different background, how to relate to even the poorest of the poor in society. Now, Jesus probably healed a lot of people after his Sermon on the Mount. He probably dealt with a lot of poor people 
after his Sermon on the Mount. Luke only chooses these two. A Gentile soldier and a widow. Now, why does Luke choose these two people? If you've been with us from the beginning, you'll remember back in chapter 4. Turn back there just for a second. When Jesus was in Nazareth and they rejected him, remember they wanted to throw him out of the city after he preached in the synagogue and he said, today the scriptures fulfilled in your sight. He reminded them of something. In verse 27, uh, Luke 4, 27, he talks about Naaman. Naaman. A Syrian, a Gentile soldier. A Gentile soldier. Whom Elisha, Elisha the prophet, healed by long distance. Then in verse 25 of Luke 4, and verse 26, in fact, at the end of verse 26, we see Elijah went to a woman who was a widow. A woman who was a widow. And remember, she had a son who had died. And Elijah raised the widow's son from the dead. So Luke has already alluded to a Gentile soldier, and he's alluded to a widow, and now we're going to see Jesus encountering a Gentile soldier and a woman, just like Elijah and Elisha did in the Old Testament. So this is going to establish Jesus as a spokesperson for God, and we're going to look at this passage, and it's very interesting when we do. Let's look at the centurion. Chapter 7, verse 1. And when he concluded all of his sayings, that's the Sermon on the Mount, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, Jesus has been here before. This is where he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Remember that? This is where he healed the multitudes, and they wanted him to continue to heal them, and he finally said, I have to go and preach the gospel in other cities as well. So he's well known in this area as a healer, and now he's back in town. Okay, Look at verse 2. And a certain centurion's servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, to Jesus, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Now, we don't know this man's name, but we know what he is. He's a Gentile military officer. Okay? And we notice several things. It says that he had a servant who was dear to him. So this is a man who treats his servants well. Not only is he servant sick, it says he's ready to die. Phil Sovier told me that her mother you know, may have only a day or two left. This is what we're talking about. We're talking about a person that's right at the point of death. Not just very sick, but at the point of death. And so this man, it's very interesting what he does. Look who he sends to Jesus in verse 3. It says he sends the elders of the Jews to Jesus. He sends a group of Jews to Jesus. Now there's probably a reason for that. Because Gentiles and Jews don't mix too often. And so he sends this group of Jews to Jesus and says, Hey, my servant's sick, would you come and heal him? 
Why to Jesus? Because he's, the rumor's out that Jesus is a healer. Now look at verse 5, four, verse 4. And when they, that's the Jews, came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. Why? Here's the reason. Because he loves our nation. And he has built us a synagogue. Okay? Now that's the basis for the healing. The Jews say, Lord, heal him because he deserves it. <clears throat> this Roman soldier deserves <coughs> something good to happen. Now notice why. Verse 5, he loves our nation, which means that he, even though he's ahead of the occupation troops, he's been good to the Jewish people. And he's built us a synagogue. Now remember who this guy is. This is a guy who's a, who serves as sort of an intermediate between Rome and the people that he's occupying. And he wants to be on good terms with these people, so he's built them a synagogue. He could be a God-fearer, means he could go into the synagogue, but I don't think that this is what, what's happened here. If you were with us last week, you remember I talked about patronage. Remember that? And I won't go into that whole study again, but I will give you enough of a summary that you'll understand it. In Rome, there was a whole social structure built on what was called patronage. There were benefactors and there were beneficiaries. The benefactor was a man, usually a man, who uh, had a high status in society. He was among the elite. And then he would do good things for people under him. They benefited from his kindness. And then they, in turn, owed their allegiance to him. Remember that? This guy has done something good for the Jewish people, and guess what they say now? We owe our allegiance to him. He deserves to have something happen. He wants his servant healed. He deserves it. He's worthy of that. Does that make sense to you? So the basis for the healing is that he's our patron and we owe him. Okay? And I think that you'll understand that as you see as we go through this. But Jesus doesn't play by those rules. Jesus is going to heal him. But not because the guy deserves anything. Why will Jesus heal? Because, according to the Sermon on the Mount, you're to love your enemies, you're to do good to those that despise you, you are to be merciful to all people. Jesus is going to do it because this is the way God wants us to act. So, guess what? The bottom line is, this man's servant will be healed, but for a different reason than the Jews think. Okay? Now look at verse 6. Then Jesus went with them, that's the Jews, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him. Now, notice in verse 3, he sent the Jews to Jesus. Now in verse 6, he sends friends to Jesus. Okay, now watch. He sent friends to Jesus, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. 
Therefore, I didn't even think myself worthy to come to you. So what we have is we have the elder, uh, we have the elders of the Jews saying, Lord, heal this man's servant because this man is what? Worthy. But this man sends his friends to Jesus and says, I'm what? Not worthy. Now, who represents this man? The Jewish elders or his friends? Now, when he sends the Jewish elders, he sends them to bring Jesus back. That's all they're supposed to do. But guess what they do? They throw in their two cents. And by the way, you have to heal him. We, we owe him something. He deserves it. He built us a synagogue. We have to give our allegiance to him. See how they added their two cents? They distorted the whole picture. So when Jesus comes near the man's house, he sends out his friends. And here's the message they deliver. Our master says that he's not worthy for you to come in the house. In fact, he's not even worthy to come out and meet you himself. Notice what he calls Jesus. Lord. He sees Jesus as his benefactor. Not Jesus. Not, he doesn't see himself as Jesus' benefactor. He sees Jesus as his benefactor, the one that will give him benefits, the one to whom he will then forever owe his allegiance. You see how once you understand certain things like patronage, it all starts making sense? Okay. So once we see that, it does make sense. He calls Jesus Lord. Now look in verse 7. He says, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Just speak a word. For I am also a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And my servant, do this. And he does it. This man understands authority. He represents Caesar. He represents Rome. And when this man speaks, people jump. And he says, I, I'm a lord over a lot of people. When I speak, they jump. They listen. Hey, I recognize you as having authority. Now, where does this guy think Jesus' authority comes from? He knows where his comes from, Rome. Where does he think Jesus' authority comes from? Well, the obvious answer is God. Because he sees Jesus as a prophet, and he wants Jesus to heal his servant. Now, when Jesus heard these things, verse 9, he marveled at him. And he turned around and he said to the crowd, shows that there was a crowd that was following him, I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. <clears throat> what a, what a <coughs> mark of faith. Just says, say a word. My servant will be healed. You couldn't ask for much more faith than that. And those that were sent, verse 10, that's the friends. Returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. Now, when you look at this, we have a healing at long distance. But there's more, more than distance that separates Jesus and this man. And that's the social status. Jesus is a peasant. This man is a Roman elite. 
There's a cultural and a social status that separates these people. But Jesus does not allow that to stand in his way. And so he heals this man. Now, when you look at this centurion in comparison with Naaman in the Old Testament and king, you have the centurion is a well-respected Gentile officer. Naaman is a well-respected Gentile officer. We actually turned back to that passage before a couple weeks ago. We went back to Kings and we looked at that passage. In this case, you have Jews interceding on behalf of the officer, the centurion. In the Naaman case, you have a Jewish girl interceding on behalf of Naaman. In this case, the centurion doesn't meet Jesus. In the Naaman situation, Naaman does not meet the prophet. And in this situation and in the Naaman situation, both are healed at a distance. So we see that there is a comparison that Luke's trying to get us to see. Jesus is bringing the light of deliverance to Gentiles. That's what Simeon said back in chapter 2. Remember Simeon the prophet? He said he'll be a light to the Gentiles. And so that's what we see happening here. Now we're just scratching the surface because now we go to the widow. Now look at verse 11. Verse 11. Now it happened the day after. That's the day after this one healing that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. Now, Nain is about five miles southeast of Capernaum, okay? So, maybe a day's journey or a few hours' journey, and he goes there. In verse 12, And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large <coughs> crowd from the city was with her. Now, first of all, I want you to notice two things in verse 11 and verse 12. There are directions given. In verse 11, Jesus went into the city. In verse 12, there's a group coming out of the city. You see that? With Jesus, there is a large crowd. Do you see that? A large crowd. They come into the city with Jesus. Look at verse 12. And with her, there was a large crowd, and they meet at the gate. Two large crowds meeting at the gate. Jesus and his disciples and the crowd coming into the city, and a funeral procession coming out of the city with a large crowd. Now, what makes this sad is this is not only a funeral procession, but it says this woman was a widow in verse 12. She's not only uh, husbandless now, she is childless. And what that means, she's hopeless. It's not like a person today. You're a widow, you don't have any children, you're getting Social Security. In those days, you were a widow and no children, you got nothing. You were the lowest of the absolute low on the social strata. You were the poorest of the poor. Because this woman's identity, as all women in Bible times, was related to men in her life. First to her husband, then to her son, 
Her husband's gone. Now her son is gone. She has no status, no importance whatsoever in her life. So she has a tragedy here. First of all, the tragedy of losing a son, and no one parent should ever have to lose a son. And that's bad enough. But there's another tragedy going on that you have to read between the lines. Now she's totally vulnerable. Now she's in dire straits, and she has no idea what's going to happen to her. She doesn't even have Social Security. So what happens is they meet right here at the gate. Now look at verse 13. Verse 13. And when Jesus saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. Now, why is that statement significant? Do not weep. If I saw somebody at a funeral and said, stop crying, just because your son's dead, you shouldn't be crying, that would sound ludicrous. So obviously that's not what it means. Jesus isn't sarcastic. In fact, it says just the opposite. He had compassion on her and he said, do not weep. Isn't that right? Why does he say, do not weep? Well, if you remember the Beatitudes, and you look back at one chapter, chapter 6, and verse 24, is it 624, is it 21, 621, look what it says. End of 21, blessed are you who weep now for you shall laugh, meaning in the kingdom. You weep now, guess what? You're blessed. You're blessed if you weep right now. And you're poor and you're in these conditions. You know why? Because one day you're going to be laughing. One day God's going to set everything straight. And guess what? She's about to discover the blessings of the kingdom right now. She's going to get a glimpse into what the kingdom is like. The laughing that's going to be in the kingdom in the future, she's going to get a glimpse into it right now in her own life. So Jesus says, with compassion, don't weep, don't weep. Remember, it's based on compassion. Then, look at verse 14, he came and touched the open coffin. They just had it like it on a, on a plank or a, a bear of some sort where the body was. And those who carried him stood still. So Jesus stops the funeral procession, dead in its tracks. He just touches the coffin, and everything comes to a halt. One day he'll stop every funeral procession. There'll be no funeral processions. No death in the kingdom. No weeping in the kingdom. We're going to get a glimpse of it right here. And this woman got an experience of it right here. God has kingdom blessings for us right now. Not like they're going to be totally in the kingdom, but every once in a while, there'll be a little break, a little, a little flicker, and we'll get to see what it's like, and we get to experience it. And so this funeral procession comes to a stop. And then he said, young man, I say to you, arise. Notice he doesn't pray. He speaks to the corpse. Lazarus, come forth. 
He speaks to the corpse. And that's what's going to happen on Resurrection Day. You're just getting a picture of what it's going to be like in the kingdom. There's going to be a shout. Lazarus, come forth! <laughs> Only your name will be there. <laughs> and we're all going to come forth. Amen. The dead in Christ will rise. And there'll be no more death. All these funerals will be eliminated. See, this is the thing about being a Christian. Death never conquers you. Doesn't mean you won't die. Jesus died. Jesus died. That's right. But three days later, he came out of the tomb. Amen. You may die, but you're going to come out of the tomb. And what did I say last week? How many days later will you come out of the tomb? Could be three months later. Lord comes back. <laughs> could be three days later. Could be 300 years later. We don't know, but guess what? We're guaranteed we'll be raised from the dead. So he doesn't even pray, just speaks to the corpse. And this is a glimpse into what the future kingdom is going to be like. Death is going to be overtaken. Death is going to be eliminated. Now look at the result. So he who was dead sat up to speak. And then Jesus presented him to his mother. And with his life restored, his mother's life is restored. See, there's more than meets the eye. The kingdom is a time of restoration. It's a time of relationships being restored. It's a time when everything gets back to the way it's supposed to be. And so this young man is presented to his mother. Now look at the reaction of the crowd. Verse 16. And this is what you would expect. Then fear came upon all. Reaction number one. Now that'll scare you. I remember Dr. Criswell's funeral and how they closed Central Expressway down. And all the professors of the college were involved in that funeral procession. And it just went on for miles and miles and miles. And the police were there and they were stopping traffic. How about if Jesus were there and he stopped the funeral? <laughs> and he would have touched the casket and Dr. Criswell would have stood up. Let me tell you. <laughs> this is what would have happened. <laughs> Fear would have come upon the We would have thought. <laughs> we, we always knew he was divine in some sense. We would have really <laughs> that would have confirmed it. Okay, now look. Fear came upon all. Now look at second reaction. And they glorified God. Fear gives way to just praising God and shouting hallelujah. I mean, that's just... It can't be stopped. It's unrestrained praise of God. And then look what they said. They made a proclamation. A great prophet has risen among us. A prophet like unto Moses. A prophet like unto Elijah. A prophet like unto Elisha. The ones who dealt with widows and soldiers in the Old Testament. Another prophet has come. One who speaks on behalf of God. Is in our midst. And then the fourth thing in verse 16. And God has visited his people. In what sense has God visited his people? He's visited his people through his prophet. Because when the prophet spoke in the Old Testament, and the prophet acted in the Old Testament, it was God speaking through the prophet and acting through the prophet. And that's what they're saying here. They're saying that in Jesus' words and in Jesus' deeds, God is indeed visiting us in a special way that we have not known in years. So this is what we call a speech act. 
a speech act. And a speech act uh, means that Jesus' speech and his, his acts carry the authority of God. Just as the centurion, when he spoke and act, acted, spoke and acted with the authority of Caesar and Rome behind him. When the president speaks, he speaks with the full authority of the United States government behind him when he speaks officially on behalf of our government. So Jesus acts and speaks on behalf of God, and so it's God visiting us in those situations. Now look at verse 17. And this report about him, about Jesus, healing the guy, went throughout all of Judea, all of the Palestinian re region, and all the surrounding region. Now, let's draw up a couple practical lessons here. First of all, let me just make an observation. Although this is a healing about a man's servant, the servant doesn't play a prominent part. The main character in verses 1 through 10, other than Jesus, is a centurion, not a servant. And the main character in verses 11 through 17, not the widow's son, but the widow. And you can tell that because it constantly says, uh, it talks about her and uh, how he relates to his mother, and it just goes over and over. That pronoun her, she, hers, is used like 11 <laughs> times in those few verses. The focus is on the centurion and the mother, not the servant and the son. Which shows you, even though the servant and the son are the ones that receive the healing, the event involves much more than meets the eye. In the resurrection of the son, it's talking really about the restoration of the mother just as much, isn't it? Because that's what Jesus was talking about in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor, blessed are they that what? Weep. Who's doing the weeping? The mother's doing the weeping. They shall laugh. Guess what? Guess who's laughing now? The mother's laughing now. You see, that's why when you're reading it, even though the healing goes to the servant and goes to the son, the real characters are the centurion who recognizes that Jesus is the Lord. And Jesus is his benefactor. And he owes his allegiance to Jesus, and he's not worthy. See? And the same with the mother, that she's being restored. So, that's one thing we need to see. The second, so, I, if I were going to give you a lesson, it's in this passage, the events tell more than meet the eye. There's really a hidden story there. Okay? The second thing, okay? Up and outers, up and outers like the centurion, the elites, need as much help as the down and outers like the poor widow woman. You don't know it, necessarily. You see, because when you look at the need that this centurion had, how did Jesus find out about it? The centurion had to take the initiative. Watch this. The centurion, the elitist, the man of high social status, had to come and take the initiative with the widow who took the initiative. Jesus took the initiative. Just the opposite of the day. In our society, if you're poor, it's usually you that take the initiative. Hey, I want a handout. Hey, I can't work. Well, can't work. You know, give me some money, right? Watch. Who takes the initiative in our society? 
The poor take the initiative of exercise. Jesus took the initiative with the poor in this story. In our society, with the up-and-outers, guess what? It's usually us that take the initiative to reach them. Hey, we need to reach the mayor of the city. We need to get in on this political situation. We need to influence that group over here. Why? Because they got money. It's amazing. We, as Christians, usually take the initiative to try to reach the up-and-outers. We want to be in their circles. In here, it's the up-and-outer who invites Jesus into his circle. We need to learn something about that. I have students who want to plant churches. They all want to plant churches out in North Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> we want to take the initiative and plant a church where there's more wealth. Because sometimes they'll be taken care of. Just the opposite of the way Jesus did. With the rich people, he allowed them to take the initiative and say, I need help. And when they say, I need help, guess what? Then you know they need help. And with the poor people, he took the initiative to help them out. So I think that's a significant thing. Just the opposite in our society. And then finally, uh, we've touched on this a little bit, but... In chapter 7, what we see is what the kingdom looks like. What kingdom principles put into practice look like. And what is that like? Well, I'll tell you what kingdom principles put into practice look like. It looks like rubbing shoulders with people that aren't like yourself. People who can give you absolutely nothing in return like the widow woman. And Jesus takes the initiative. Amen. Dealing with a man, willing to go to a man's house who's a Gentile. And if you go into his house, you become ritually unclean for seven days if you're a Jew back in Jesus' time. But Jesus willing to do it. You see, that's what it's about. The principles that we discovered in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 and 6, we now begin to see lived out and demonstrated in the ministry of Jesus. And Luke just picks two of them, so you'll see what it looks like. And what we need to do is we need to go and we need to do likewise. Now, next week we're going to look at John the Baptist because from these two passages, there's no doubt who Jesus is. He represents God on earth. But next week we're going to see John send somebody to Jesus. Hey, the centurion sent somebody to Jesus. Now John the Baptist sent somebody to Jesus. And John the Baptist's question is, are you the guy we're supposed to be looking for, or should we go follow somebody else? <laughs> Just the opposite of what you would expect. And we'll see how that works out next week. So let's stop there. Father, I thank you for this passage. Help us to realize that we need to be very sensitive to your spirit. We need to know when to take the initiative and when to back off. We need to know, Lord, uh, in what direction you're leading us to minister. Help us always, Lord, to realize that you've given us principles that involve humility, that involve mercy, that involve compassions that are to be lived out day by day. Help us never to think more than we ought of ourselves. Help us not to have large egos and pride and think we deserve anything, because we don't. But, Lord, we do cry out for your mercy and your compassion. And you've given it to us, and now you tell us to turn around and show it to others. Lord, help us to put these principles into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.